Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. I have a great guest today, uh, Tim Noakes. He's a professor. Uh, he was born in Harare, Zimbabwe in 1949. And uh, it seems like he's had a lifetime interest in sports. He attended Diocletian College in Cape Town, studied at the University of Cape Town. And uh, he's been involved in exercise science for you know more years than I've been alive. And uh, now he runs the Noakes Foundation. So, Tim, how are you doing? Very well, thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Yeah, um, it seems like you've been thinking about diet and health again for, you know, decades. So can you tell me a little bit about your background? What prompted you to be interested in diet and how it affects health? And then we'll come to today and what you're working on. Sure. So Richard, I did my medical training, but was much more interested in sport. And in fact, when I was training, I was only interested in what I was learning, how it related to sport. So as soon as I graduated and I did my internship, I went straight into research, and the very first studies I did were to determine what fuels the heart uses most to produce the most power output. And that was said in my PhD thesis. So I had an interest in carbohydrates and fats and lactate and ketones. And in fact, the second experiment I ever did was feeding the heart glucose and ketones. It's little rat's hearts, and I showed immediately that if you gave them ketones, they work, they perform better. And then if you add insulin, they did even better. And then if you added adrenaline, they, they did even better than that. So, so that was kind of the, my introduction to research. But at the same time that I was doing this research, I was running marathons and ultra marathons, And I was aware of research that came out whilst I was doing my medical training. In fact, it came out in 1970, and I was doing my physiology training. Then showing or opposing that if you ate carbohydrates, you would perform better. Ooh. And that would... And the mechanism was you'd store more carbohydrate or glycogen in the muscles, and then you'd be able to use this carbohydrate, and that gave you explosive power, and you could run forever as long as you were burning carbohydrates. So our first research program, which we built up from absolutely nothing, was to study carbohydrate metabolism in athletes and how you could influence it by loading with carbohydrates before the race or or before exercise. Interesting carbohydrates during exercise. Okay. So did some prodigious research, and I was totally, absolutely, completely committed to the idea that you had to run on carbohydrates to the point that the three of us, myself, Bruce Fordyce, a very famous marathon runner, an ultra marathon runner, Bernard Rose, who was top marathon runner in South Africa at the time, and myself, produced a product called FRN, that was for all our surname initials for our surnames. FRN Lepin Squeezies, and we we were the people who globally introduced the idea that you needed to take carbohydrates with you so that you could run better during exercise. Hmm. So that was my kind of introduction, and I did that for many, many years, and then all of a sudden in 2010, I realized that the carbohydrate story had made me sick, and I read a book on Berlick, Finney, and Westman, and it's called The New Atkins for the New You, and within two hours, I realized for 33 years, I'd been spreading lies, oh, no. and I said, I'm 
tell the world that I've been spreading lies and my book, The Law of Running, I said was completely wrong because it promoted excessive carbohydrate consumption. And so I came out of the closet, so to speak, and said, I'm a scientist and I was wrong, I apologize. And for the last seven years, I've been battling the consequences of, of saying I was wrong. <laughs> well, if, if you don't mind, you know, I, I think a lot of people, well, untold millions have, probably have a, a story of problems with carbohydrates. What happened to you? What caused you to have this realization after so many years? Well, I actually read the book, you see, and at the time I didn't realize how sick I was. And I then, within that day, by that morning, I'd said, that's it, no more carbs. So within two hours of reading the book, I cut the carbs, and within three days I felt dramatic, and within six weeks, my running had gone back 20 years. I went back to running as well as I had 20 years before. I was then 60, it went back to 40. So I figured there's something seriously good going on here. And at the time, I didn't really worry about my health because, gosh, if you've gone back 20 years, you wouldn't think that you could be diseased. But eventually, I decided, well, I better check for, for diabetes. And I had been checking, but never really seriously. And then all of a sudden, I discovered, oh, my gosh, I've got time to diabetes. Hmm. And so then, then I went, obviously, more seriously on the diet and, and cut the carbohydrates even more and introduced intermittent fasting. And now I'm glad to say my diabetes is in remission. Seven years after starting the diet, it took seven years, but it's in remission. I'm very thankful for that. It, wow! It took so it took you seven years. What? How um, strict would you say you were with your diet? And uh, you know, I would bet at times you probably felt, you know, hey, I'm doing more than most people, but yet still I have this problem because I've I yeah, felt I, that, you know. Right, right. But you see, Richard, I'd watched my dad die of type two diabetes. Uh, and he was given advice to eat a high carbohydrate diet. Mm. And this is 19, between, around about 1990. And I was still promoting high carbohydrate diets. So, of course, I thought that he's being treated correctly. Yeah. And he just got more severe arterial disease and he had strokes and lost both his limbs. Right. And when I was diagnosed, I realized my dad took 10 years to go from being pretty healthy to being dead. And so I had 10 years to sort the problem out. And I was very strict, and I still am extremely strict. I mean, I haven't had a sweet-tasting sugar or anything, or a sweet or a dessert for seven years, and I won't. I, you know, I will die without having another sweet or a dessert for the rest of my life. And right. my, my results, my, my control went better and better and better, and eventually I got it down to values which, which you'd say were normal for a person of my age of 69. Well, what's the trajectory of the markers that you looked at, you know, the reason why I want to harp on this is that I know, you know, again, from experience, you know, I'm impatient. My wife is impatient. A lot of people want results and think that if they're not getting results within, you know, 30 days or even two weeks or six months that something's wrong or it's not working. So that's why I think it's so important to talk about the seven year process. Like what did you experience over the yeah. seven years? So Stupidly, I, I had already gone on to the low-carb diet for about a year before I decided that I actually have diabetes and now I'm treated properly with metformin and so on. And the first HbA1c value I had was 6.3, which was when I was on medication, on metformin, and I was already on the low-carb diet. So hmm. if you, before, my HbA1c probably would have been well over 7. So I would think that going on to the diet, taking metformin, initially was got me down to 6.3 and then over as i become more and more fastidious and i think 
I reduced my carbohydrates probably from 50 grams a day down to 25. And I mean, some days today are probably almost zero grams carbs per day. Wow. And I put my HbA1c down to 5.2, which was then I said, okay, fine, if you at 5.2, and the diagnostic criteria for diabetes is 6.5, which I think is wrong. I think 5.5 is where I would start making a diagnosis of diabetes, but I'm below, well below 5.5, so therefore, in my opinion, I'm in, I'm in remission. Mm. And my father's glucose does vary, but I can get it down to 4.6, 4.7 now, not every day, but it's generally low fives, and it used to be 6.87 before I, before I started. So those are the, the two markers. And the other one is just general health. I'm just, I, I never had any of the symptoms or signs of type 2 diabetes, although I probably had glucose in my urine, and I got some sort of feedback that I probably... I was that that would give you an idea of how high my glucose was if it was appearing in my urine. So, so that's the story. It took me seven years to go from an HbA1c of over seven, which I projected that being, mm. down to five point two. And um, physically, mentally, what did you feel like? You know, the first month or two, and then what did you feel like a year out, and then now seven years yeah. out? So the. The first thing I know is because I was, I think I was clearly diabetic. I mean, I'm sure my glucoses were running well over seven, eight. And because I was getting sleepy, I was hangry, I would get angry, inexplicably angry, which I'm just not that type of person. And I could never understand that. So that, within days of starting, I started to feel better. And I just think my blood glucose probably started dropping immediately. And as I've indicated, within Within six weeks, my running, I just, it was unbelievable. It was like a second birth. I, I could not, I can't tell you the excitement when I started running the same speeds that I'd run 20 years before. So that, that's what I noticed. And then since then, intensive uh, weight training, and I'm starting to build up muscle, and my glucose control's got a little bit better as a consequence. And I'm, I'm feeling amazing. I mean, I'm doing exercises in terms of working out in the gym that I've never done in my life. Wow. <laughs> and I think it's because I'm eating this very low-carb diet and I'm adapting extremely well to it. Okay. So, you know, let's fast forward to today. You have the Noakes Foundation. What's your, what's your focus today? What are you doing and what are you talking about and disseminating and what's the premise of the foundation? Yeah, the premise of the foundation, we started because I, we, I wanted to fund low-carbohydrate research by really good scientists, and I wanted to look particularly at the reversal of type 2 diabetes, what happens metabolically, because as I've indicated, I spent uh, 30 years studying carbohydrate metabolism in healthy athletes, and we, the technologies we've developed, and with a couple of tweaks, we can study diabetic patients extremely successfully, and we raised a whole bunch of money from some wonderful people in California, and we're currently doing funding a trial in which people with diabetes are put on the low-carb diet, and we're monitoring their reversal of the disease, and what are the metabolic changes that occur, because it's pretty logical that if that's what happens when you reverse your diabetes, well, it might, the reverse must have been happening when you develop the disease. Mm. So, that's, that's the, that's, so that's a big area of our research. We then realized that one of the problems with this diet, it's expensive, and 
most South Africans are, are, who are struggling with their dietary problems and obesity are poor or relatively poor. And we developed a program called the Eat Better South Africa campaign, which allows South Africans in the poorest communities for $3 a day maximum to eat a diet that is high fat, low carbohydrate, and is extremely healthy. And we've done 10 interventions in communities and shown, A, it's sustainable, we can do it. And now we're we're building up to a large randomized controlled trial where we're going to take something like 200 people, put them on the diet, okay. and, and we, we're pretty sure the outcomes will be amazing. So that's the second leg. The third leg is we've just started a nutrition network, which is a program of certification and training in this in how to prescribe this diet because we, we believe very strongly that there are many, many thousands of doctors out there who want to learn how to prescribe a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet but they're scared because it contradicts or conflicts with the guidelines that they've been taught. Mm. And we try to prove to them that it's absolutely safe and it's actually the ideal diet for people with type 2 diabetes. So we've had a great response to that and we're expanding that program all the time. So those are the main foci of, of the Nokes Foundation. And it's it, what, what amazes me is that we've got the solution for the obesity-diabetes problem in this country, and we can address it in the poorer people, but governments are not interested, funding bodies are not interested. It's just amazing the, the lack of intent to make the people healthy. I just don't know why there's so much resistance mm. to taking what so obviously works and applying it. So instead of insulin resistance, the governments uh, have this kind of resistance, health resistance. Uh, Bad joke. But... Absolutely. It, it amazes me how how they can't accept that, you know, we can't continue to do what we've been doing and make yeah. people fat and, and diabetic and think that it can go on forever. Well, you, you so you've been studying both sides of the equation, carbohydrate metabolism, now, you know, low-carb fat metabolism. Metabolism. Yeah. I would think you would know far more than just you know someone that, that listeners could watch on YouTube and ask about the diet. So, what are some of the things that you've learned? Some of the particulars that really struck you as amazing, or you think would be very helpful for people listening that want to eat this way, or at least want to be healthier and should eat this way. Yeah. So I think that you know, there's a lot of argument about what makes us obese, etc. And, and my view is it's hunger. So you have to address hunger if you want to lose weight. You must find a diet that will take your hunger away without conscious effort. And the, for the majority of people, this diet works. It's the high protein and the high fat content takes away hunger completely. So, you know, I just eat once a day nowadays. And in the past, I would eat three or four meals a day and, and be hungry, even though I was eating 500 calories more than I'm eating today. I'd be continuously hungry because that was the carbohydrates and how it happens to me, it doesn't matter. All I know is that if you eat carbohydrates, they make you hungry. And if you eat fat and protein, you don't get hungry. And how it acts is, is of secondary importance. I was, I was giving a lecture this evening, and, and one of the guys said, you know, you, you give this evidence about the benefits of the low-carb diet, but, but the science not randomized controlled trials that last 50 years. And I said, yeah, that, that's quite true, but... But there are studies that have lasted two years and they show continued benefit. I said, but it's logical. If you look at the biology of everything, you'll see that this, this diet works. It lowers your insulin and all the knock-on effects of high insulin are, are reversed. Hmm. So I think what I've learned then is that it's 
hunger number one, you've got to treat the hunger. Secondly, you've got, you must keep your insulin low, and fasting is very, very helpful for that. And then thirdly, you become a fat burner, and that is terribly, terribly important. And one of the slides I showed this doctors this, this evening was a study done by Louise Burke, an old friend of mine who works at the Australian Institute of Sport, and took a group of race walkers, world-class race walkers, and showed that if you adapted them to the high-fat diet and then checked and tested them whilst they were doing race walking at their Olympic race pace, they burned almost no carbohydrate. They went from burning three or four grams a minute down to less than half a gram a minute. And their fat oxidation just shot off the car charts. They had the highest values of fat oxidation I've ever seen in my life. And this took just three weeks of no insulin, no carbohydrate diet. What that tells me is that humans are naturally fat burners, that, but we take it away from them by giving them high carbohydrate diets. And the over secretion of insulin completely knocks out the ability to burn fat. But when you put the people back, the humans, into the condition they should be in, which is eating low carbohydrate diets, it doesn't take any time at all for them to start burning all this fat. And when you all the fat, in my opinion, that you're going to be the most healthy. What um, if you were to look? I know everyone's different, but just as a guideline, if you compare someone that's thirty versus forty, fifty, sixty, seventy, you know they've just been around longer. They've probably been eating high carbohydrate, high sugar diet longer. What is your estimate on how long it would take people at each of these ages to get into um, better shape and to feel better and to have uh, all their blood markers kind of come into line? I think the response is pretty quick. So I'd say three to six months, you'll probably see most of the changes. But the, the, but the psychological changes probably take a little bit longer. Mm. And they kind of, it kind of reinforces itself because everyone tells you you're looking so fantastic. <laughs> you kind of get to feel better anyway, even if you're not, there's no other biological changes. Mm. So I think that, that for most of us, the changes occur. The first two weeks can be very tough, but thereafter you suddenly start to notice things. And, and I would say by three to six months, you'll, you'll probably notice the most of the changes. But it is an adaptive process, and you, you continue to just get a, you get a better idea of what you should be eating. And, and I think that also takes time. And certainly in my case, I'm, I'm eating much better today than I was a couple of years ago. Because you, you, you realize what are the best foods to eat and when to eat them. Hmm. And I, I think those, that's an important adaptation, which... At first, you, you've got to get rid of all the addictions, the sugar addiction, the carbohydrate addiction, the sweetness. You've got to get rid of all those things. And it takes a long, long time, at least for some of us like myself. It took me 14 months to stop adding sugar to my tea or coffee. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, and so that, that's how big that sugar addiction was. It, it, for sugar and food, I very quickly got rid of that. But, but it can come back very quickly. And you, you just have to be very cautious that you stay well away from sugary foods but then as i was indicating the, the the loss of this desire to eat sweetness takes a bit longer and i think it took probably two or three years for me where i now i no, have absolutely no desire to eat sweet foods now which and that that takes a long time and i think that yeah that also good mark and that your health improved yeah I've, I've been down this road not not as strict as you i'm sure but i've been down this road and um it took me yeah, probably six months at least to get to the point where 
you know, my family could be sitting there eating ice cream in front of me and it just didn't bother me at all. But I, yeah. you know, I learned as, like you said, when you're hungry, you're in danger. I say, you know, so you, then you're more likely to want this stuff. Um, Richard, there was another thing I noticed, like when I would go shopping with my wife in the supermarket, I would get hungry. Now I can go in there and I look at the food and it means absolutely nothing to me. Hmm. I never, I don't feel any desire to buy the food and eat it. That's good. Yeah. One thing I, I think that is not pointed out is, you know, you, like you said, you advocate low carb diets, but people don't seem to talk about low sugar as well. I always see them either one or the other, but it seems like you need to have not only low carb, but low sugar in order for this to work. If you just have low carb, but sugar, it's no good. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, what's really interesting was I was listening to a broadcast the other day from a doctor, local doctor, and he was banging on about cholesterol causing heart disease. And then the lady said, what about sugar? Oh, sugar is a disaster. You know, we're actually beginning to realize that sugar could also be a cause of heart disease. And I thought, that's fabulous. And then she said, and you know, a little bit of refined carbs yesterday, perhaps not so good, you know. So there's a shift. And so the medical profession have said, yeah, no, sugar is not good for you, which is fantastic. So we're making a shift. They're saying, they're still not saying fat's good for you, but at least mm. they're saying sugar is not good for you. And refined carbohydrates, and then eventually they'll say fat is good for you. Yeah. So, so there's, there's been a big movement in that direction, and it, it's very encouraging. But to come back to your point, if, if you're eating sugar, you're always going to be looking for processed foods, and that's a real problem. You, you have to get rid of the sweet taste for, for long-term reversal, if you're like myself with type 2 diabetes, or you're at risk of developing it. You've got to get rid of the sweet taste, and that, that takes a long time, and initially it takes a lot of discipline, but eventually it becomes second nature. Yeah, there was, um, there was a book that we spoke about before, you know, by Dr. Jason Fung, you know, The Obesity Code, and you wrote the foreword for that, you know, great book. Um, in it, he seems to say that, again, it, it, if you've had a condition for years, you can't expect that you're going to solve it just in maybe a week or two. Are you seeing any correlation between the length of time that someone has been unhealthy or has diabetes and the amount of time it takes them to write, to write, oh, I lost you, Tim, sorry. Oh, one second. Okay. Let me make sure I get the speaker loud enough. Okay, you there? Yeah. Okay. All right. Let me, let me restart that question. We'll edit it out. So um, a book that I picked up recently called The Obesity Code by Dr. Jason Fung. You know, you wrote the foreword for it. It was a great book. And in it, um, Dr. Fung seems to say that the longer someone is in an unhealthy state, the longer it's going to take them to right the ship. Have you found that? Or is it, well, you I don't really find, you find I, it works think, quickly anyway? I think he's probably right because, you know, I was, I was eating this high carbohydrate diet for 33 years. And, and now we went back to some of my data. When I was a runner, we collected insulin, fasting insulin and glucose during an experiment on myself. And I discovered I was profoundly insulin resistant. I had a value for fasting insulin five times normal. And that was that was when I was running marathons. I was running 70 miles a week minimum. Mm. I was lean. I was doing everything right. And I was profoundly insulin resistant. So, you know, when people say insulin resistance is caused by obesity, it's, it's nonsensical. 
it's the insulin resistance comes first and for, for many of us we're thin, we're originally thin and we can be found we can and we can be profoundly insulin resistant. So I've been insulin resistant all my life, I suspect. But it took me till I was sixty before I realised it and I developed type two diabetes. And the the fact that it took me seven years to reverse and the fact that I still need to take metformin to keep that additional little bit of excellent control shows that, that it probably is. I'm, I'm sure if I had stopped eating carbohydrates when I was 40, I would never, ever, ever have got into this state. So I tend to agree with him. I think that the longer you've had the condition, the longer you're going to have to, to work at it to, to get better. Okay. Are there any helpers that uh, people can use? Like, you know, have you studied exogenous ketones and would that help people you know, get into a, a ketogenic state or help them adhere to a low-carb, low-sugar diet? You know, that's a great question. And, and this very week, I've been speaking to Brianna Stubbs, from, who was originally at Oxford University and now is working in, in San Francisco, and who's marketing a ketone ester, which is astonishing. She gave me some to take when I was in San Francisco two years ago. And my glucose dropped by one millimole per liter. That, that's a big drop. I mean, that medication won't do that. I can't do that with medication. Mm. And my ketones went up to three millimoles per liter within about 20 minutes. I could not believe it. And I think that this, that, that exogenous ketone esters are a medicine. I think that's where they'll have their role. And I think particularly if you have problems with glucose dependent, whatever it is, like glucose dependent cancers. If I had a glucose dependent cancer, I would be on ketone. Esters 24 hours a day wow. because I think they could really have a big role to play. But I think that's the one area. And I think if I had a mental disorder, if I had Parkinson's disease, or I was developing it, I would be taking these uh, regularly. And I think the reason is that for me to get my ketones up to three millimoles per liter means I have to to fast for at least 24 hours and do some serious running, an hour or two's running, hmm. and and not eat at all because. I think as you, I may be wrong, but maybe other people have noticed this, that the longer you're on this diet, the less ketotic you become, it seems to me. What and, do you mean the less ketotic? It is. It's, you, and it's not because I've changed the diet dramatically. There's, there's something else going on. What do, you, what do you mean the less ketotic? What does that mean? That means that I produce less ketone bodies. So I huh. work my, my ketone, blood ketone levels are much lower than they were when I first started. When I first started, I would have ketone body levels of 1 to 2, but now it's about like 0.3 to 0.6 most of the time. Huh. And that's millimoles per liter. We right. use different values in South Africa than in the United States, but that, that gives you an idea. So the, the ketone esters can raise your blood ketone levels astonishingly and very rapidly. So I'm sure they will find a role in medicine but I'm not sure whether they yet have a role in sport or in management of, of healthy people. Yeah, they have, in the U.S. at least, they have mostly ketone salts, like beta-hydroxybutyrate, which are not as powerful, I've heard, as ketone esters and not as disgusting. And I take, uh, you know, a, a ketone salt, and it yes. it seems to blunt, um, you know, insulin sensitivity or make, make you a bit more insulin sensitive. It seems to depress glucose a little bit after eating, so... But I guess we'll see yeah. what, what happens. Yeah, and I mean, that, that's, as I indicated, my blood glucose dropped out of the sky. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. It was like taking the most potent diabetic medication. So, well, you know, whether there's a role for using them in people who have frank diabetes 
and use them in, as a supplement to, uh, to, in addition to other medications. Uh, that, that'll be interesting to find out. Well, tell me a little bit of, uh, more about the intermittent fasting. Um, that again, I've you know I've looked at all kinds of charts and studies, and you know people. Some people say you know uh, don't eat for sixteen hours on the overnight, and then confine your eating to an eight-hour window. Some people say the real benefits don't come until you're eighteen hours in. You know, some people say fast for days. What what have you found is the sweet spot that works that you can do without you know finding difficulty doing? What's easy for me is sixteen hours and eight hours on. Sixteen hours off, eight hours on. And anyway, I'm, I'm only eating one major meal a day, and then I might have something light to snack on for the other meal. And so it's very easy to go from from dinner to lunch the next day without eating. And that's kind of what I do. And then I will eat for during that eight-hour period, but I'll only eat one meal plus one sort of snacky-type meal during those eight hours. And I think that, that that's important. To, you know, again, it's keep your insulin as low as possible if you've got type 2 diabetes. And so and that's I found that very, very effective. I do think that if you fast for one or two days, you, you do jolt the system in some way. And there may well be additional benefits from that. I haven't really read the literature yet, and because I found it a little impractical to to fast for two days, and I'm happy enough with my health at the moment to say that the the 16 hours, eight hour model of intermittent fasting is ideal for me. Mm. Yeah. And again, I think I think I think it's highly practical for. I think everyone can do 16 eight, and if you can do 16 eight. You can do 24 hours. That's true. You can then do longer fast if you choose to and if you find that there's evidence that it's going to help your health. Yeah, I've noticed that eating, um, you know, this way allows you to go longer without eating and it's easy. It's, it's you know, it's, it's no big deal. So, uh, yeah. So, what, um, you know, I also know that, you know, when I tell people about the way I eat, and I'm sure when you do, they're like, <gasps> you know, they think it's impossible for them. So, what are... Yeah some intermittent, you know, funny word, but what are some steps people can use to approach this, you know, where you are and still succeed without, you know, saying, oh my God, I can't climb the mountain, I give up. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the first thing is you've got to get rid of the sugar because the sugar is driving you to eat every three hours. And the same with processed food. So I tell people if you're eating every three hours, you've got an addictive eating behavior pattern. And it's because you're eating too much carbs and too much sugar. And the way to get around that is to increase, obviously, the fat, but also the protein content of the diet. And as you do that and you become more fat-adapted and burning fat, then it becomes progressively easier. So it's quite true. If 20 years ago you'd come to me and said you should fast for 16 hours, I said it's utterly impossible. Mm. Because when I went to that food for more than six hours, I felt dreadful. I felt so sick. But I now know that that was an addiction, that I was just removing an addictive substance. And I was getting withdrawal symptoms. It had nothing to do with hunger. It's the withdrawal symptoms. So once you get people to realize and they start removing the carbs and the sugar, then they get rid of the withdrawal symptoms. And then it's much easier. But the key is when you get hungry, make sure you've got food available that is safe and healthy for you to eat. To snack on and, and for many people it's difficult because the food that you see in the environment particularly in the united states is just it's processed sweets and other things which are just just going to make you hungry in another three hours and so you have to go prepared 
with the foods that you can that you know will, will take your hunger away. So what are your what have you found are some of your go to snacks or go to foods or meals you know to help give people an idea of what to do? Sure. So high fat high fat nuts like macadamia nuts are kind of my standard, and a few almonds and a few walnuts. But but macadamia are the stand my most fat with the least carbohydrates. And then in this country, we have a product called Biltong, which is jer- jerky in your mm-hmm. country. And I always have that available. And then cheese. Cheese is my third go-to. I think probably I eat an enormous amount of cheese. And that would be the third. And then it might be avocados would be kind of the fourth. But those are the four foods that, that I would go to and to snack on. And within a handful of nuts and a bit of Biltong and a bit of cheese, my hunger disappears for another six hours. Wow. That's great. Okay. So what, um, what are your recommendations for people, again, listening that are considering this and they want to get started? What's, what's like a simple path for people to get started initially? I think it all starts with what you eat for breakfast. And so that's what I always mm-hmm. ask people. And if you're eating cereals and grains and lots of sugar and lots of skim milk and orange juice, etc., and toast, and with honey on it, that's a disaster. That is just, you cannot get right if you're going to eat that breakfast because that breakfast is high in sugar and high in carbohydrate and you're going to be hungry in three hours. So you have to replace all of that with a high-fat, high-protein breakfast. And for me, it's the, the typical, what we call the English breakfast, but I'm sure there's an American version. And I would guess that the sort of American truckers breakfast so, so I would, what I eat for breakfast when I eat breakfast is lots of eggs, as four or six eggs for a start, lots of bacon, and uh, certainly some yogurt, perhaps some salmon, and those would be that would be my go-to foods for breakfast, and perhaps a uh, high-fat yogurt, and, and that will keep me going till five o'clock in the evening if I if I choose to eat breakfast. Hmm. And so it's going to be my one main meal. And, and I think that's the other thing. Is when, you, when you eat this way, you must eat. When you eat a proper meal, eat a proper meal. Because you're not going to eat in three hours' time. You're going to eat in eight or ten hours' time. So make sure you eat enough to keep you full for ten hours. Hmm. What we do is we eat too little in each sitting. And then and it's got too much carbohydrate. And so three hours or four hours later, you're hungry. No, no, no. You've got to eat a real good-sized portion of food and make sure that's it. And you don't then get hungry at lunchtime. And I tell people to do that. I say, why don't you do this experiment? Eat your standard cereals and grain breakfast and see when you're hungry. And it's always at 11 or 12 and have to eat more. Right. And then I say, all you do is eat bacon and eggs if bacon's allowed in your, in your, in your religion. But you eat those. If it's not going to be bacon, there must be a, so a fatty it. fish or avocados or whatever, but you eat a lot of them. And eat, don't, don't stop at two eggs. No, I have four eggs every for breakfast, maybe go to six, but, but you have a big meal and then you see what happens and then all of a sudden they say, gosh, I forgot to eat at lunch and I only got hungry at three o'clock or four o'clock in the afternoon. I said, that's the proof. That's all the proof you need that this diet will take away your hunger provided you eat enough fat and enough protein for breakfast. So to me, that's, that's critical, and, and the people who fail are the ones who continue to try to eat fruit and other things, cereals and grains for breakfast. That, that's a disaster. You can't afford to eat that way. Hmm. 
Well, one, one last thing I wanted to bring up is um, artificial sweeteners. So I've seen, you know, doctors literally and diet people saying, oh, you know, cut out the sugar but have artificial sweeteners. But what I what I think that does is it keeps you in that craving state for sugar and it also causes a massive insulin response. So it's, you just got to cut out the sugar, period. You can't substitute it with anything is what, you know, occurs to me so artificial sweeteners don't seem to help at all they just they're actually worse i you you couldn't i couldn't say it better you absolutely summed it up absolutely perfectly you've got to get rid of the, the desire for sweetness as long as you have a desire for sweetness you'll never adapt properly to the start and so you're quite right and i think the health consequences of, of using sugar derivative sugar sweeteners uh, artificial sweeteners they, we don't know the full consequences, but they're not going to be benign because those are chemicals that, that our bodies are not designed to handle. Mm. The good thing is when you uh, get to a low sugar state and then you have something that's even a little bit sugary, you're like, Bleh. and I'm like, God, how could you eat that? You know, <laughs> so your uh, your uh, perception of sugar goes way up, and I'm sure if you tried something sugar, it would be like disgusting to you. You know? Yeah, I know exactly. I, I would spit it out. In fact, I was in in Canada. Uh, probably three years ago, and I ordered a coffee, and the guy put sugar in, and, and I tasted. I just spat it out. I couldn't eat it. It couldn't. It was just. It was vile. Mm. The, the taste of sugar is absolutely vile to me. And I'm sure people can't even imagine that because they love sugar, and they say, "Oh, I love my my donuts, or I love my this, or I love my that." It's hard to uh, you know to imagine not loving that stuff, but it happens. So. Yeah, exactly, and, and that, that's the key. You know, if, until we get people off their sugar addiction. We can't reverse the obesity diabetes epidemic. It really begins and ends with the sugar. Well, sorry, it doesn't end, but it begins with the sugar addiction. Yeah, and just to give people an idea of how many people worldwide, you know, I don't know if you've seen figures, but how many people worldwide do you think are struggling with, like, active diabetes or they're getting close? Well, it's, well I know that data are at least 400 million people have diabetes globally. And that's on the most rudimentary testing, because once you do proper testing, you probably double that number. So there's another half hiding behind yet haven't yet been diagnosed. Hmm. So those are the figures. It's frightening. You know, in this country, we have an HIV epidemic. We have the highest HIV rates in the world. But there are only 40, only, please understand, if you have HIV, it's not only. But there are 40 million people with HIV, but there are 400 million with type 2 diabetes. It's a tsunami of, of unbelievable proportions. And whereas you can manage HIV quite well with medication, there's only one medication that helps diabetes, and that's a low-carbohydrate diet. But yet, we don't promote it enough. And my profession has completely failed to promote the idea that if you have type 2 diabetes, you have to eat a low-carbohydrate diet. Mm. Anything else is, is malpractice. It's bad medicine. All right, very good. What, so what resources can we give to listeners? How can they find out more about your foundation and your work and get started on the journey? Yeah, please, they could go to the Noakes Foundation website. That would be a really good start. And uh, they could follow me on, on Twitter, um, at Prof Tim Noakes. And I have a great interest in promoting all the science on low carbs. So if there's recent decent studies on low carbs or there are bad studies, on low carbs or bad studies on high carbs, I tend to, to tweet those quite actively. And yeah. also just to to remind people that, that I was in this court case which went on for 28 days over four years, and I gave 
nine days of testimony, and those nine days plus another three days from three expert witnesses have been captured on video, and they are also available on the Noakes Foundation website for, for no charge. Hmm. And that gives you one of the best best explanations of the low-carbohydrate diet and the science behind it and the absence of evidence for harm and the absence of evidence that the low-fat diet, the standard American diet, is beneficial. So I think a lot of people can benefit hugely. They can get a course in nutrition by, by following those ATR videos. Okay, very good. Well, Tim, thanks for taking your time and coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure, Richard. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.